The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Begin our time together. I'd like to begin by reading three quotes for you. Hang on to these as we proceed through tonight's teaching, as you will see their relevance as we progress through God's Word. We do not take the Bible literally, but as instruction about how God works with people and events. There are always new truths to be revealed, but we look at the whole biblical principle. There is one great commandment to love God and our neighbor as ourselves. Second quote is, we have a clear set of standards and expectations for all who are ordained. We judge them by their behavior rather than on the basis of their sexual orientation. My third quote is, the work that the National Abortion Federation and their members do to secure and expand abortion access every day is at the heart of my own values and commitments. Throughout my career, I have preached that abortion is a blessing and that providers are modern day saints and heroes. And I have seen firsthand how access to abortion can improve the lives and health of women and their families. It is an honor to join an organization I have long admired and to be able to support abortion providers during such a critical time. It would not be a surprise if those who identify themselves as naturalistic humanists, atheists, liberal progressives, and the like would say such things. We should not be shocked when sinners sin. Unfortunately, the above quotes did not come from representatives who reside outside the walls of the church. They were all made by individuals who claim to follow Christ. Not just average players, though. These are leaders in their denominations. The first quote, where it is said, we do not take the Bible literally. This was spoken at a conference by Carol Keim, a conference minister for the United Church of Christ in Phoenix. The next example uh, where the individual stated we judge them by their behavior rather than on the basis of their sexual orientation. That was an appeal to President Clinton to lift the ban on gays in the military made by Bishop Herbert Chilstrom, the first and four-term bishop of the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. He also served as a vice president of the Lutheran World Federation and headed a committee for the National Council of Churches, which explored special relationships between Roman Catholicism and evangelicals. The third statement, which included abortion is a blessing and that providers are modern day saints and heroes was stated by the Reverend Catherine Hancock Ragsdale, an American Episcopal priest based in Massachusetts and former president and dean of Episcopal Divinity School. Since September 2018, she has been interim president and CEO of the National Abortion Federation. What is even more confounding is how these individuals could make such statements and set forth such policies within denominations that were initially formed with a revolutionary commitment to the gospel. And they're not even stopped. Note that this just did not happen overnight. 
the conditions necessary for an entire denomination to place these apostates in power and embrace such radical deviance began a long time ago and most likely started with a small and maybe even unnoticeable compromise. Each small compromise, though, will inevitably be followed by a greater compromise unless collective repentance takes place and the one who called for said compromise is eradicated. I have the charge this evening to talk about the archetype of these three church leaders. The amount of scripture dedicated to Jezebel is rather limited, but the amount and type of havoc wreaked by her is virtually unmatched by any other woman and many other men in biblical history. Her name is still used to reference any individual, uh, usually but not exclusively female, that has found their way into a position of power by circumventing conventional protocol and that has brought both qualitative and quantitative corruption to an institution of people. We are introduced to Jezebel in 1 Kings 16 upon her marriage to King Ahab of Israel. Jezebel was the daughter of the King Ithobel, first of Tyre, whose identity is referred to as Sidonian or Phoenician. Either way, we know that it's pagan. It is likely that Ahab married her in an effort to create an alliance that would help uh, protect both Tyre and Israel from surrounding hostile nations. What seemed like a good idea at the time and reasonable to man turned into tragedy for all players involved, including the entire nation of Israel. Let us first consider what Jezebel did that made her such a notorious villain of the scriptures. In 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29, we begin to read, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now the Sidonians had their own pantheon, which included Baal and Asherah. Baal was viewed as the ruler over the weather and over fertility. We wouldn't or we shouldn't judge these people too harshly because we can imagine um, the attraction that a storm and fertility God would have to a people whose very lives and well-being uh, depended on the crops and the livestock to succeed, to reproduce. Baal eventually became recognized as the head of this pagan religion's pantheon and worship was worshipped by sacrificing, among other things, pigs uh, and even human infants when times got really tough. This gives us even more insight into why God prohibited pig sacrifice and was especially condemning of human sacrifice. Asherah was initially identified as Baal's mother, but later began to take on the role of his mistress. She was upheld as the goddess of motherhood and fertility. Ray Vander Lynn of Focus on the Family writes, Pagans practiced sympathetic magic 
That is, they believed that they could influence the gods' actions by performing the behavior they wished the gods to demonstrate. Believing the union of Baal and Asherah produced fertility, their worshipers engaged in immoral behavior to cause the gods to join together, ensuring good harvests. This practice became the basis for religious prostitution. So if you ever wondered why there were prostitutes in these pagan temples, that explains it. It goes back to this idea of sympathetic magic. Asherah poles were the locations of her worship. Frequently found at the foot of the, these poles were jars which contained sacrificed human infants. When Ahab took Jezebel to be his wife, he didn't just marry her. He married her whole religious system along with her zeal for it. We see that Ahab wasted no time in building an altar for Baal, uh, a house of worship for Baal, and also a place of worship in the high places for Asherah, all in Samaria, which is now the capital of the northern kingdom, Israel. In chapter 17, we briefly leave Jezebel and Ahab and are introduced to the prophet Elijah. He proves to be a strong voice for God and demonstrates through miracles that God is working in and through him. And what we will see is that he becomes the arch nemesis, so to speak, of Jezebel. The next time we hear of Jezebel is in chapter 18. We learn in verse 2 of a great famine in the land. Ahab dispatches the man who watches over his household, a prophet named Obadiah, to go find water and grass. Now watch this in order to save his horses and mules. Ahab's priorities reveal to us his personal immaturity and selfishness as he seeks care for his animals rather than for his people. In verse three and four, we are told that Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, which prompted Obadiah to secretly hide a hundred of them in a cave where he kept them fed with bread and water. Somehow, whether through exile or execution, Jezebel purged Israel of Yahweh's prophets and replaced them with 800 prophets of Baal. The elimination of Yahweh's prophets meant the elimination of God's word in the land and Jezebel's opportunity to then disseminate an entirely different message without challenge. If you forget everything else in this sermon, remember this, that those who wish to disseminate untruth among God's people must begin by dissolving the people's knowledge, understanding, and adherence to and honor of God's word. In many evangelical churches today, we are observing the trivialization of God's word and its replacement by personal experiences and feelings. Very dangerous thing. You can be sure that Carol Kime of the United Church of Christ proclaims that they do not take the Bible literally because not because there's an intellectual reason for it, not because there's rational evidence, but because there's an agenda that she wishes to push in and through that denomination. Now, remember earlier we said in relation to the three apostates we quoted at the beginning, that this didn't just happen overnight. This was a process that likely began with a small compromise, one that most probably, probably didn't even catch. The compromise might have been so small that it seemed inconsequential. The compromise might have been overlooked because the person committing the compromise was so qualified 
or so loved by the people that they fooled themselves into thinking that it couldn't be wrong. The compromise might have satisfied an agenda that the people felt so strongly about that they didn't want to consider what God had to say about it. There could be a bunch of reasons. The initial compromise occurred though, and it occurred for one of those reasons. Regardless of why it occurred though, it is the, the people's best interest to operate wisely, well-informed of God's word and disciplined and accountable to each other, including their leadership. So when and where does it go wrong uh, such that we eventually see a murderous, adulterous, pagan idol worshiper from another country guiding the people of God. It was long before Ahab ever married her. And as we consider this, let's not uh, push aside our thoughts of our own church and of the Church of America and of the Protestant church all over the world. While there are many things that led up to this atrocity, Considering that it took place in Israel's governing structure, we will look at it from within the monarchy. As we start to apply this then later to our churches, we need to consider it through uh, the spiritual leaders. Now, we begin setting the stage in Deuteronomy 5.1 where it states uh, that Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. Let me repeat that last part. Hold this part with you as we then screen through what's going to happen here. Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, that you shall learn them. So first of all, we have to be educated in them and then be careful to do them. Don't just be hearers, be doers of the word. Moses then proceeds to recite a long list of laws given by God designed to benefit his people. Long into this list, he gives a kind of spoiler alert that most never pick up on. In chapter 17, verse 14, he begins... When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Not who you choose, who God chooses. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you, who is not your brother. Maybe later on they think, well, she's our sister. I don't know. We tend to play words uh, like that. We tend to do gymnastics with the language in order to justify sin. Verse 16, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. So, how early do we see the stage of compromise being built? It's not Ahab. Uh, it's not Omri before him. Not even close. This goes way back to at least Solomon, if not David. And notice 
Is not David remembered as a man after God's own heart and Solomon as the wisest king in Israel's history? How could such a righteous king and wise king stray from the divinely ordered path? That is how we rationalize things. They must not really be straying, right? Well, it's like the penguins of Madagascar. You didn't see anything. Oh, we must be so careful not to be blinded by someone's virtue such that we don't see them sin. We all sin. Every one of us is vulnerable. While David did indeed sin, it is with Solomon that we see sin that will establish a precedent of sin for kings to come and a blinding of the people's eyes such that they no longer see the sin, they grow callous to it. Let's return now to 1 Kings and see what Solomon does. Beginning in chapter 3, we read Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house in the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places. However, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of David, his father. That's a positive statement. Only this, he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Right there's a compromise. There are seeds of sin, blatant disobedience to God sown right here. As we progress or maybe digress through the following kings, both of, both of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, we're going to see repeated abuses in these areas. Even when an occasional righteous king arises in Judah, he is praised and he is praised for walking as David walked in obeying the Lord. And when they even destroy the idols and pagan worship, there's frequently the following phrase that kind of qualifies how good these guys are or are not. And it says, but he did not destroy the high places. A lot of these kings of Judah get this high praise, but then it's followed up with, they didn't completely eradicate paganism and idol worship from the land. So in the Northern kingdom of Israel, we have unrighteous king after unrighteous king. And the sin that was sown in the beginning of the monarchy continues and even gets worse. In first Kings 11, after accumulating masses amounts of wealth, and building stables with 40,000 stalls for horses and donkeys, both forbidden by God for the king of Israel to do, by the way. We read that Solomon, quote, loved many foreign women and turned his heart away to other gods. Now, this is not in my notes, uh, but as a father to a son, as a father to two daughters, and as a uh, headmaster in a school that's full of young men and women, uh, and as someone who came out of a ministry in which I worked with college students, I have seen Christians come into the school, I've seen them come into the campus ready to do work for the Lord, they wanna help out with the ministry, and then they meet somebody. This somebody's usually nice, they're handsome or pretty, they come out of a church background, but their heart is not for the Lord. 
and what I have seen time after time after time, more so than any other sin, is the student falls for someone who does not hold to a strong worship of the Lord. I think nine out of ten times would be a conservative estimate. It wipes them out every time. Their affections are stolen away from God. So, uh, as a parent to a bunch of other parents, keep an eye on that one. Uh, raise your children well. Give them wisdom in this area. Don't let the Jezebel come in. Chapter 12 tells us that his son Rehoboam ruled with harshness rather than kindness in spite of the counsel he received from the elders. It also tells us that his son Jeroboam, that Rehoboam's son Jeroboam, set up the false worship of two golden calves and false leaders, not from the tribe of Levi, in a false location that was not Jerusalem. What we're doing is we're, we're watching the introduction of more and more sin. And because of who's bringing it in, the people aren't catching it. They don't know the word as they should. Uh, they, they're not following the prophets. Uh, and one by one, their liberties are really being, um, their liberties in Yahweh are actually being eroded. Uh, but their liberties with their flesh are being expanded. And we're going to see that they really enjoy this. Basha, then Elah, then Zimri, then Amri, quote, unquote, all did evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam, making Israel sin. So yes, every individual in Israel is responsible for their own sin, but there's a collective responsibility given to these kings. They are responsible for dragging their people down. When we get to Omri, the last guy on that list, it adds one more thing. Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord and acted more wickedly than all who were before him. So we're seeing a, a deterioration generation after generation after generation of Israeli kings. Then came Ahab. And in verse 30 of chapter 16, we are told, Ahab, son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. That would mean he did worse than even Omri. This is followed by a tragic statement in verse 31, where it is then said, and, and take note of this, it's very significant. And this is where once you've gone through years of deterioration, years of accepting and compromising uh, on sin, this is where we end up. Quote, and it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam that he married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. Sin has now become just trivial. It doesn't matter. As we read earlier, the result was that Ahab built in the land of Israel a house to Baal, an altar to Baal, and an Asherah pole. How did we get there, though? It all began with what seemed to be a reasonable compromise. The seed of this reasonable compromise has now grown into a jungle of abominations and has, path, uh, has paved the way for an enemy of God to begin calling the shots. Harken back to Deuteronomy 17. Let's review the Mosaic Law. 
If there is found among you with any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it has, is told to you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or that woman who has done this evil thing, pagan worship, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. Jezebel is getting away with this in spades. Not only is she serving other gods, but she is getting the very king of Israel to fund the operation and is luring God's people right into it with her. The people have been groomed so effectively over time that she is able to do this without any fear of retribution. We see one more tragedy occur at the hands of Jezebel, and what an injustice it is. King Ahab desires a piece of land owned by a man named Naboth, as if he didn't have enough land already. Ahab offers Naboth a fair price for the land, but is rejected because uh, for Naboth, this is not about the money. It would be an abomination to him to sell the land that was handed down to him by his ancestors. So a very noble reason for hanging on to the land. Ahab then goes back to the palace and pouts like a spoiled child, though, once again demonstrating his uh, lack of maturity. Uh, in walks Jezebel with a very um, sinister plan. Uh, what is interesting, though, is that it has the appearance of righteousness. Now watch how she does this. Back to Deuteronomy 17, verses 6 through 7, Moses writes, On the evidence of two witnesses, or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. We're talking about that stoning in, in the front gate uh, due to pagan worship. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. That's the word of the Lord. Back to 1 Kings chapter 21, starting in verse 8. Let's look at what Jezebel does. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. Now take note of who she's sending this information to. These are the elders and the leaders. These aren't just common folk. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. So now we've got Naboth being set up to violate what we read in Deuteronomy about pagan worship, uh, which it, which warrants being stoned to death in the gate, front gate. Then, our text continues, take him out and stone him to death. And the men of the city, the elders and the leaders who lived in the city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed the fast and set uh, Naboth at the head of the people, 
And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of his people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. How many people do we have doing this? More than one. So they took him outside the city and stunned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and he is dead. So what Jezebel did was she took God's word and they followed God's word. They took the individual who had blasphemed God, who had engaged in uh, a pagan response to the worship of Yahweh. And uh, at the, the testimony of at least two men, um, he was stoned to death. Probably a righteous man. Notice that not only was this premeditated evil, she planned all this. This was a really well-organized plan. It was wrapped up in biblical language and she got away with it. Make no mistake, when the evil one wants to throw off God's people, he will look good. He will provide seemingly brilliant and practical reasons to compromise God's law. He will slowly pry God's people away from his word and gradually replace it with a counterfeit one. He will chisel away at people's resistance to increasingly greater and greater sin. And then wrap it all up in biblical language and Christianese. Fortunately, Jezebel does meet her demise. I guess that's the good news here. God raises up a man named Jehu, who has promised the kingdom if he removes Jezebel. He comes riding into the capital city of Samaria, not caring who he offends, not listening to anyone who wants to stop him, wearing his little red uh, Make Israel Great Again cap, bent on accomplishing his mission of taking Jezebel out of power. Upon his arrival, Jezebel dresses up so she can die with dignity. She insults him one last time and is thrown out of the window by the eunuchs who would rather avoid the wrath of Jehu uh, and her body is mutilated by the horses and chariots that ran over her, leaving only her head, her hands, and her feet, which would be consumed by the dogs in accordance with God's word. Although a fitting ending, Israel would never be the same. You can't undo this damage. It'll never recover, and eventually will be taken over by the cruel and wicked Assyrians. And it all started with a simple compromise by Israel's good guy king many years before. Welcome to the majority of Sunday morning televangelism and best-selling authors in our Christian bookstores. Welcome to Kime, Chilstrom, Ragsdale, and hundreds more that we didn't even mention. Welcome to Jezebel. Church, it is imperative that we keep the Jezebels out there is no such thing as a simple compromise. It's never harmless. There's no such thing as an idea without a consequence. There's no room for the sexual immorality or the idolatry that the world presses so hard for us to embrace. God said no. He meant no. It is our duty to take it seriously and understand that if it can cause a nation to fall, it can easily do the same to a denomination or a local congregation. Let us Jezebel-proof our churches, our ministries, and our homes by standing our ground from the beginning and allowing absolutely no compromise.